Hello, and welcome back to Off the Deaton Path. I'm Stan Deaton with the Georgia Historical Society, and we welcome you to this podcast for July 1st, 2021. We are broadcasting this week from the Declaring Independence Department here at the Georgia Historical Society on the 15th floor of the Jepson House overlooking beautiful Forsyth Park in downtown historic Savannah. We'll be talking about one of my favorite movies about the founding era in just a moment. We'll also take a look at what's new on the Off the Deaton Path bookshelf this week. But before we get to that, however, let's begin with a look at the ever-popular This Week in History. On July 1st, 1946, 75 years ago, the Centers for Disease Control was established in Atlanta. During World War II, the Office of Malaria Control in War Areas operated in Atlanta to control malaria in the southeastern states where the mosquito thrived. Most military personnel were trained in this area. American soldiers fought diseases as much as the enemy, particularly malaria in the South Pacific. In 1946, Dr. Joseph Mountain converted the Offices of Malaria Control into the Communicable Disease Center, a public health agency that would monitor and control infectious diseases. The battle soon widened to include perfecting the polio vaccine, vaccination, and disease surveillance, and perhaps its greatest achievement, eradicating smallpox. The agency eventually became the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and it remains on the front lines of public health in America. On July 2, 1964, 57 years ago, the Civil Rights Act was signed into law by President Lyndon Johnson. It was one of the most far-reaching congressional acts in American history and is often called the most important U.S. law on civil rights since Reconstruction and is a hallmark of the American civil rights movement. In 1954, the Supreme Court's landmark decision in Brown v. Topeka Board of Education outlawed segregated schools, But the invigorated civil rights movement ran head-on into massive resistance, a resurgent Ku Klux Klan, and white backlash. Despite the Supreme Court decision, political leaders like Georgia Senators Richard Russell and Herman Talmadge successfully stonewalled federal civil rights legislation through the use of the filibuster. The legislation had been proposed originally by President John F. Kennedy in June 1963, but it was opposed by filibuster in the Senate. After Kennedy was assassinated, President Johnson pushed the bill forward. The U.S. House of Representatives passed the bill on February 10, 1964, and after a 54-day filibuster, one of the longest debates in Senate history, it passed the U.S. Senate on June 19. The final vote in the House was 290 to 130 and 73 to 27 in the Senate. In 2020, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that firing an employee for being gay, lesbian, or transgender is illegal under the Civil Rights Act's Title VII Prohibition of Sex Discrimination. On July 3, 1971, 50 years ago, singer and songwriter Jim Morrison, a member of the group The Doors, died in Paris at age 27. Morrison was born in 1943 in Melbourne, Florida. His father was a naval officer, ultimately an admiral, and the family moved frequently, though it settled down in the Washington, D.C. suburb of Alexandria, Virginia, where Morrison attended high school and was a good but rebellious student. He began his college education in 1961 at St. Petersburg Junior College in Florida and developed his talents as a performer by reciting poetry at a local coffee house. He subsequently transferred to Florida State University and then to UCLA, where he studied film. It was there that he met Ray Manzarek, who played the organ in the rock group that the two formed in 1965 with guitarist Robbie Krieger and drummer John Densmore. 
They called themselves The Doors, taking their name from Aldous Huxley's book on mescaline entitled The Doors of Perception, published in 1954, which was itself titled after a line by William Blake. For a brief period in the mid-1960s, The Doors were the house band of the Whiskey A Go-Go, a much-storied club on the Sunset Strip in Los Angeles. At about the same time, the group signed with Electra Records, for whom they released a string of hit singles, including 1967's Light My Fire and Hello, I Love You in 1968, along with critically, critically acclaimed albums such as The Doors in 1967 and L.A. Woman in 1971. Morrison became one of the most charismatic frontmen in rock history, and his baritone voice and poetic lyrics helped make the band one of rock music's most potent controversial and theatrical acts. Morrison was also known for his drinking and drug use and outrageous stage behavior. During a 1969 concert in Miami, he allegedly exposed himself on stage, and he was later convicted on charges of indecent exposure and profanity. He was sentenced to six months in prison, but was granted bail pending his appeal. Incidentally, in 2010, he was posthumously pardoned. In 1971, Morrison left the doors to write poetry and moved to Paris, where he was found dead in his bathtub on July 3rd. The cause of death was officially listed as heart failure, but there was no autopsy, leading, of course, to various conspiracy theories. His grave in the Père Lachaise Cemetery became a mecca for music fans and one of Paris's most unlikely tourist attractions. Incidentally, Two years earlier, on July 3rd, 1969, 52 years ago, Rolling Stones guitarist Brian Jones died in the swimming pool at his home, also at the age of 27. He is buried in Cheltenham Cemetery and Crematorium in Cheltenham, England. On July 4th, 1826, 195 years ago, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, founding fathers and the second and third American presidents, died on the same day on the 50th anniversary of America's independence and on the 50th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence, which they had both been so instrumental in writing and passing. Adams was 90, Jefferson 83. For many Americans, the fact that two such beloved figures not only died on the same day, but on the birthday of America, in which they played so prominent a role, was deeply moving and for some a sign of God's divine favor for the United States. Jefferson died first at 12.50 p.m. at his home, Monticello, in Virginia, at supposedly the same hour 50 years earlier in which the Declaration had been presented to the Second Continental Congress. He was buried in the family cemetery in Monticello the next afternoon, July 5th. Adams died at his home, Peacefield, four and a half hours later at approximately 6.20 p.m. that evening. His last words were, Thomas Jefferson survives. Adams, along with his wife Abigail and his son John Quincy and his wife Louisa, are buried at the United First Parish Church in Quincy, Massachusetts. At age 90, Adams was the longest-lived U.S. president until Ronald Reagan surpassed him in 2001. Five years later, on July 4, 1831, 190 years ago, the fifth president, James Monroe, died in New York at age 73. He was originally buried in the New York City Marble Cemetery. 27 years later, in 1858, his body was reinterred at the President's Circle in Hollywood Cemetery in Richmond, Virginia. Three of the first five presidents died on July 4th. 
On July 5, 1954, 67 years ago, Elvis Presley recorded That's All Right at Sun Studios in Memphis, Tennessee, widely regarded by many critics as the very first rock and roll recording. Presley was already a flamboyant personality with long greased black greased back hair and wild colored clothing combinations, but his full musical personality did not emerge until that night in Memphis. During an otherwise uneventful recording session, Elvis was on acoustic rhythm guitar, Scotty Moore was on lead guitar, and Bill Black was on string bass. During a break between recordings, Presley began improvising an up-tempo version of Arthur Big Boy Crudup's 1946 song, That's Alright Mama. Black, on bass, joined in, and the pair was soon joined by Moore's guitar. Producer Sam Phillips asked the three to start over again so he could record it. Produced in the style of a live performance, all parts performed at once and recorded onto one track, the recording contains no drums or additional instruments. Presley's version has lyrics different from Arthur Crudup's version and was about twice as fast. They arrived at a startling synthesis, eventually dubbed Rockabilly. This sound was the hallmark of the five singles Presley released on Sun over the next year. The next evening, the trio recorded, in a similar style, Blue Moon of Kentucky, which became the That's All Right singles B-side. Sam Phillips gave copies of the acetate to local disc jockeys. Two days later, on July 7, 1954, Dewey Phillips played That's All Right on his popular radio show entitled Red Hot and Blue. On hearing the news that Dewey was going to play his song, Elvis reportedly went to the local movie theater to calm his nerves. Interest in the song was so intense that Dewey reportedly played the acetate 14 times and received over 40 telephone calls about it. Presley was persuaded to go to the station for an on-air interview that very night. Unaware that the microphone was live at the time, Presley answered Dewey's questions, including one about which high school he attended, a roundabout way of informing the audience of Presley's race without actually asking the question. That's All Right was officially released two weeks later on July 19, 1954, and sold around 20,000 copies, not enough to make it a national hit, but was an important part of the Elvis train that was about to leave the station, and a huge part of music history. Now, if you're interested, you can go on YouTube and listen to both Crudup's 1946 version and Presley's 1954 recording and decide for yourself which you think is actually the first rock and roll single. Staying with the musical theme, on July 6, 1957, 64 years ago, Paul McCartney met John Lennon for the first time at a church event in Liverpool, England, where Lennon's band was performing. The duo would later form the Beatles, perhaps the most influential band in history. On July 7, 1930, 91 years ago, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle died in England. Doyle, of course, is most famous as the creator of Sherlock Holmes, one of the most vivid, famous, and enduring characters in all of literature. While a medical student at the University of Edinburgh, Conan Doyle was deeply impressed by the skill of one of his professors, Dr. Joseph Bell, in observing the most minute detail regarding a patient's condition. This master of diagnostic deduction became the model for Conan Doyle's literary creation, Sherlock Holmes, who first appeared in A Study in Scarlet, a novel-length story published in Beaton's Christmas Annual of 1887. 
Doyle went on to write 56 short stories and three other novel-length stories about Holmes, most famously The Hound of the Baskervilles, though he always felt that Holmes was a distraction from other, more serious writing that he wanted to do. Besides his Holmes stories, Conan Doyle wrote a book in 1907 about his love of books entitled Through the Magic Door that I highly recommend to you. I've read it many times. Conan Doyle died at the age of 71 and is buried under a large tree at the back of the cemetery in All Saints Churchyard in the village of Minstead, England. Finally, because this is a podcast about history, one birthday to note this week, David McCulloch turns 88 on July 7th. The widely acclaimed author and biographer won Pulitzer Prizes for his books Truman, published in 1992, and John Adams, published in 2001. Two National Book Awards for The Path Between the Seas, The Creation of the Panama Canal, 1870-1914, published in 1977, and also for Mornings on Horseback, The Story of an Extraordinary Family, A Vanished Way of Life, and the Unique Child Who Became Theodore Roosevelt, published in 1981. He also won two Francis Parkman Prizes from the Society of American Historians for The Path Between the Seas and Truman. He was the recipient of the 1995 Charles Frankel Medal of the National Endowment for the Humanities, now called the National Humanities Medal, and a 2006 Presidential Medal of Freedom. Happy birthday to David McCulloch. And that's This Week in History. One death of note to tell you about this week. John Patterson, the 44th governor of Alabama, died on June 4th. Patterson was governor from 1959 to 1963 during a very turbulent period of the civil rights movement. Patterson's political career as attorney general of Alabama from 1955 to 59, followed by four years as the state's governor, encompassed two milestones of the civil rights revolution, the Montgomery Bus Boycott of 1955-56, and the Freedom Riders in 1961. Time magazine featured him on its cover in 1961 as the embodiment of white Southern defiance. During Army service in World War II, Patterson was assigned to General Dwight Eisenhower's staff in London. He followed Eisenhower into the North Africa campaign, where he received the Bronze Star for combat service. He received a law degree from the University of Alabama in 1949 and was recalled to Army service during the Korean War before resuming his legal career with his father's practice in Phoenix City, Alabama. In June 1954, his father, Albert Patterson, ran for state attorney general and stunned Phoenix City crime bosses by winning the Democratic nomination, which at that time was tantamount to winning the general election, by campaigning to rid his town of crime. Less than two weeks after his victory, Albert Patterson was assassinated on a downtown street. Phoenix City was placed under martial law, and a deputy sheriff was eventually convicted of the murder. John Patterson took his father's place as the nominee and at age 32 became attorney general of the state of Alabama. 
During his first year in office, Rosa Parks refused to surrender her seat to a white passenger on a Montgomery bus, an act of protest that brought about her arrest and a year-long bus boycott led by the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. As the boycott continued, white resistance hardened, and Patterson, who had so far not taken firm positions on civil rights, made what he would later acknowledge was a calculated, cynical decision. If he wanted to be elected governor, and he did, he would have to move to the forefront in the fight to maintain segregation. Most political observers gave him little chance to win the governor's race over George Wallace, a state judge who was running as a relative moderate on race issues. But Patterson's persistent attacks on the NAACP won him backing from the Ku Klux Klan, and he won the election in 1958. Patterson's victory had an enduring effect on George Wallace. Shaken by his loss, he recast himself as an ardent foe of desegregation, and his race-baiting rhetoric came to define his later tenure as governor and his presidential runs. Early in 1961, the Freedom Riders, civil rights activists who were testing the Supreme Court's recent ruling outlawing segregation in interstate travel, encountered violent resistance almost from the moment they entered Alabama. Many of the riders were severely beaten with baseball bats and lead pipes when they stepped off the buses and found no local police there to protect them from white mobs. An enraged Governor Patterson held a press conference and told reporters, quote, We can't act as nursemaids to agitators. You just can't guarantee the safety of a fool, and that's what these folks are, unquote. A furious round of phone calls ensued between Patterson and the Kennedy administration, and the governor reluctantly agreed to ensure the safety of the Freedom Riders between Birmingham and Montgomery, where city police would take over. But the police were slow to arrive at the bus terminal, allowing local segregationists to attack savagely again. Attorney General Robert Kennedy, the president's brother, mobilized hundreds of federal marshals, and Governor Patterson declared martial law as a last resort. In 1984, George Wallace, who was again governor, named John Patterson to the Alabama Court of Criminal Appeals, where he remained until his retirement in 1997. On May 20, 2011, 50 years after the Freedom Riders, a group of 10 former Freedom Riders, black and white, returned to Montgomery after 50 years to be hailed as civil rights heroes and to dedicate a museum at the old bus station where they had been beaten by a white mob. John Patterson was there to greet them. In 1961, he had called them agitators and fools. A half century later, he joined in praising them. Quote, it took a lot of nerve and guts to do what they did, he said. In 2008, John Patterson supported Barack Obama for president and said, quote, having a record of supporting segregation is a terrible burden to bear, unquote. John Patterson died on June 4th at the age of 99. And now on to three new additions to the Off the Deaton Path bookshelf that I think you might be interested in. Many historians are writing very specialized history now, but some, like Jill Lepore, are still writing grand historical narratives that cover the entire sweep of American history. Alan Taylor is another historian doing that. Taylor is the Thomas Jefferson Foundation Professor of History at the University of Virginia and has twice won the Pulitzer Prize. His new book is entitled American Republics. A Continental History of the United States, 1783 to 1850, published in May by W.W. W. Norton. Taylor is painting on a very broad canvas, and he paints a picture of a young and growing country that is internally very divided, 
fighting indigenous people on the frontier as the country expanded westward. The institution of slavery was, of course, growing more powerful and expanding as well, while the American military was fighting in Canada, Mexico, and Florida during this period. As America expanded westward, eventually to the Pacific, it became ever more divided internally as sectional politics and animosities dominated everything else. There is a full cast of characters here, some familiar and some less so, from John C. Calhoun, Henry Clay, Daniel Webster, John Quincy Adams, to Frederick Douglass, Sojourner Truth, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and Margaret Fuller. And it moves from Quebec to Mexico City to the Cherokee capital of New Echota, right here in Georgia, to the California coast. If you're interested in the broad sweep of American history, this is a story you'll want to check out. It's Alan Taylor's latest book, American Republics, plural there, A Continental History of the United States, 1783 to 1850, published in May by W.W. Norton. As I mentioned in our last podcast, there is an ongoing national discussion about race and racism in American history. One new book that sheds a harsh new light on an undertold story uh, uh, aspect of this is a new book by Joshua Rothman, who is a professor of history and chair of the Department of History at the University of Alabama. The book is entitled The Ledger and the Chain, How Domestic Slave Traders Shaped America, published in April by Basic Books. Slave traders are peripheral figures who, we're told, were treated as social outcasts in most histories of American slavery. But these men who trafficked and sold over half a million enslaved people from the Upper South to the Deep South were essential to slavery's expansion and fueled the growth and prosperity of the United States in the 19th century. Rothman recounts the gripping story of the domestic slave trade by tracing the lives and careers of Isaac Franklin, John Armfield, and Rice Ballard, who built the largest and most powerful slave trading operation in American history. And far from being social outcasts, they were rich and widely respected businessmen, and their company sat at the center of capital um, connections, the, the capital-flowing connections, I should say, connecting southern cotton fields to northeastern banks. This is an outstanding new contribution to our understanding of Antebellum America that you'll want to check out. Again, the book is entitled The Ledger and the Chain, How Domestic Slave Traders Shaped America by Joshua Rothman, published by Basic Books. Finally, long-suffering listeners of this podcast may recall from an earlier episode this season when I talked about Ferdinand Magellan sailing through the straits that now bear his name at the southern tip of South America, the Straits of Magellan, and how one day I want to travel through them. Well, there's a new book out about another legendary explorer and exploiter who traveled through the Straits and, in fact, was the first captain to successfully circumnavigate the globe. You will recall Magellan died along the way. I'm talking, of course, about Francis Drake. The book is entitled In Search of a Kingdom, Francis Drake, Elizabeth I, and the Perilous Birth of the British Empire by Lawrence Burgreen published in March by Custom House. Burgreen has written acclaimed books on Magellan, Columbus, and on Marco Polo, among others. And here he recounts not only Drake's around-the-world voyage that took him to the coast of Northern California, among many other places, but also his defeat of the Spanish Armada, all in the service of creating what became the British Empire. It's a fascinating story from the period when the maritime powers of Europe were still trying to figure out exactly what lay beyond the horizon, and the clash of cultures that resulted. Again, it's entitled In Search of a Kingdom, Francis Drake, 
Elizabeth I, and The Perilous Birth of the British Empire by Lawrence Burgreen, published in March by Custom House. Check it out. And that's this week's look at the Off the Deaton Path bookshelf. I hope you're reading something good, too. Fourth, just around the corner, chances are I'll be watching all or part of one of my favorite movies of all time, the musical 1776, produced in 1972. The musical Hamilton has justly received a great deal of attention and awards for its portrayal of that founder and the same time period covered in 1776, but before Hamilton, there was 1776. I don't remember exactly when I first discovered this movie, but sometime in the 1990s, I think, when I was a graduate student. The movie was based on the 1969 Broadway musical of the same name and is written by Peter Stone, directed by Peter Hunt. The movie is, of course, based on the events leading up to the signing of the Declaration of Independence, telling the story of the efforts of John Adams to persuade his colleagues to vote for American independence and to sign the document. The movie takes place roughly during the month of June, 1776, as the Second Continental Congress debates American independence, and it has both great musical numbers and great dramatic moments as Congress debates the contentious issue of independence. Now, most of the cast of the movie came from the Broadway musical. Some were known, some were not, including William Daniels as John Adams, Howard De Silva as Benjamin Franklin, Ken Howard with red hair as Thomas Jefferson, Donald Madden as John Dickinson, and John Cullum as Edward Rutledge. William Daniels, you may recall, and you probably know these people from other things, went on to play Mark Craig in the drama series St. Elsewhere, for which he won two Primetime Emmy Awards, and he played George Feeney in the sitcom Boy Meets World. He also provided the voice of uh, the car in Knight Rider. He is still alive, now 94 years old. Ken Howard went on to star in the TV series The White Shadow between 1978 and 1981, while John Cullum, who famously sang the song Molasses to Rum about slavery and the slave trade in the movie, went on to have several memorable TV roles, including tavern owner Holling Vincour in Northern Exposure, gaining an Emmy Award nomination, and as Dr. Mark Green's father on the NBC hit medical series ER. He is still alive as well, now 91. The movie also memorably stars Blythe Danner as Martha Jefferson and Virginia Vestoff as Abigail Adams. Many of the most memorable roles were played by actors who had appeared in the Broadway version but were making, in some cases, their one and only film appearance, including Ralston Hall, or excuse me, Ralston Hill who played Secretary Charles Thompson, very memorably. David Ford, who played John Hancock, sitting there in the president's chair, who is forever swatting flies. Ron Holgate, H-O-L-G-A-T-E, who, who hilariously played Richard Henry Lee. He, he played him really as a bit of a clown, but still marvelously, and about whom one critic said, quote, there is simply no stopping Mr. Holgate, 
as he explodes with the sheer happiness of having come to exist, unquote. Although he had only one song, entitled The Lees of Old Virginia, and a few scant lines of additional dialogue, dialogue, Holgate earned a Tony Award as Best Featured Actor in a Musical for his portrayal of Richard Henry Lee. He, by the way, still alive, is 84 years old. This was also the only film of Donald Madden, who brilliantly portrays Pennsylvania's John Dickinson. And let's not forget William Duell, D-U-E-L-L, as Congressional Custodian Andrew McNair, who is forever bringing rum to Stephen Hopkins of Rhode Island and exclaiming in exasperation, Sweet Jesus! A few fun tidbits about this movie. The exteriors were filmed at the Warner Ranch in Burbank, California, the former Columbia Pictures backlot, where they built an entire street of colonial Philadelphia. So no, you're not looking at Philadelphia when you see the exteriors. Most of the colonial sets, by the way, were destroyed by a fire in the mid-1970s. The interiors were shot at the old Columbia studio on Gower Street in Hollywood, In fact, 1776 was among the final films shot there before the Warner-Columbia merger in 1971. Now, if you remember, the water fountain that you can see during the musical number, The Lees of Old Virginia, with Ben Franklin, John Adams, and Richard Henry Lee outside, became well-known to television viewers 20 years later as the fountain that you can see during the beginning credits, uh, credits of the TV show Friends. That fountain, by the way, still exists directly across the street from the Bewitched and I Dream of Genie houses. Now, if you tune into this movie expecting to see other of the famous founding fathers, some of them are inexplicably not there. George Washington is never portrayed, though he is talked about. Samuel Adams of Boston is not here, nor is Patrick Henry of Virginia. Now, Lyman Hall is here from Georgia, but not George Walton or Button Gwinnett. He of the famous signature. Historical inaccuracies abound in this film. Too many to mention here, but don't let that get in the way of enjoying this movie. There are so many wonderful moments in the film. Stephen Hopkins, continuously drinking rum, but also memorably declaring as Congress was debating at the beginning of the movie whether to even discuss the dangerous idea of independence. He memorably said, and I quote here, I ain't never seen, smelled, nor heard of an issue so dangerous it couldn't be talked about. Hell yeah, I'm for debate, and Rhode Island says yay. There are the two New York delegates who, whenever they're asked for their vote, always reply, New York abstains courteously. By the way, the two actors who played the New York delegates also previously both played SS characters in Hogan's Heroes. Now, the state of Maryland is always called Maryland by its delegate here in 1776. And as I mentioned, Dr. Lyman Hall of Georgia plays a pretty important role in the narrative, which is fun, though why the producers decided to portray that particular Georgia delegate instead of Button Gwinnett, we do not know. Now, despite the songs and some of the silliness, I think the movie captures the mood of the historic events from that period and remains one of the finest portrayals of the passions and politics and egos on display in those rooms in Philadelphia in the hot summer of 1776. And also, I think, what was at stake when they signed the Declaration and how desperate the whole enterprise seemed at the very end as the British are closing in on New York and General Washington's army and they are committing themselves to independence. The HBO miniseries John Adams is, of course, a much better portrayal of Adams and much more historically accurate. But this little slice of Americana 
1776, made about the founding era during the height of the Nixon era and the Vietnam War years, remains one of my favorite movies. If you haven't seen it, I hope you check it out and enjoy it. The hardest working engineer in show business, the czar of our Tallahassee office, as well as the captain of the GHS ostrich racing team, is our very own Brendan Cannonball Crellin. Our GHS director of media manipulation and free elections is Patty Press Release Maher. The GHS playground director, staff archaeologist, and fearless food taster is Elise, are you going to eat that? Butler. Our GHS coordinator of classroom indoctrination is Lisa War Eagle Landers. The GHS maven of social media and library science is Sabrina Human Search Engine Saturday. Our GHS efficiency expert and controller of German names is Karen Bodenschatz Zollner. The director of the GHS Russian Literature Division is Christy Maple Crisp, assisted by our writing intern, Warren Pease. Our Off the Deaton Path fact checker is Ella Fino. Our GHS air traffic controller is Yulanda Ulucky. Our GHS New York-based dispute settlement coordinator is Hugh Talking to Me. Our Off the Deaton Path head of building and grounds is Mo DeLon. Our Off the Deaton Path director of Three Stooges Studies is Lee Iapoca. The GHS director of year-end bonuses is Holly Unlikely. Our staff elections coordinator is Emmanuel Recount. And our Off the Deaton Path martini mixer is Olive Twist. If you have an iPhone, you can find our podcast at the App Store or on the podcast app on your phone and on Spotify. If you have an Android, look for us at Google Play. You can find out everything about the Georgia Historical Society at georgiahistory.com and the Georgia History Festival at georgiahistoryfestival.org. Be sure and like Off the Deaton Path on Facebook and Instagram as well. Please also visit deatonpath.georgiahistory.com and check out dispatches from Off the Deaton Path, my blog, and similarly independence-inspiring podcasts like this one. Stay safe, stay strong. I'm Stan Deaton with the Georgia Historical Society. As always, thank you for listening and have a very happy and safe Independence Day. <laughs>